This is The Politics of Everything, and I'm your host, Amber Danes. Welcome to the podcast where we want to discuss the politics of everything, from money to motherhood, nutrition to narcissism, startups to secularism, the environment to equality, and much more. Our guests are experts in their field or topic of choice, even if you've not yet heard their name. This is a bipartisan podcast, so while we love exploring varied views and get a buzz from a healthy debate, by no means is this a one-sided forum for any one political view. So please listen up and enjoy the politics of everything. My guest today could be forgiven for rejecting the very notion of optimism. At 12 years of age, Stacey Copas had a devastating swimming pool accident that left her a quadriplegic, forever dependent on a wheelchair. Though this has unquestionably changed the course of her life, Stacey has used her experience and personal philosophies to become one of Australia's leading keynote speakers and facilitators on resilience and how to turn adversity into an asset. She can regularly be found delivering keynote speeches, training, consulting and coaching to big organisations such as Telstra and the CSIRO. Her first book, How to Be Resilient, was published in 2015 and has been featured in numerous media outlets. Stacey is an ambassador for the Lane Beachley Foundation Aim for the Stars and donates a percentage of her speaker fees and the sale of each book to support the foundation. What a woman. I'm so delighted to speak to Stacey today on the politics of optimism. Welcome. Thank you so much, Amber. It's a pleasure to be here. So I'm going to start with the big question. How do you define optimism? I mean, is it just about being positive in good times and bad or is it something bigger than that? To me, when I think about optimism, I look at it as more of a probably a future-paced thing. So I look at it about having a belief that good things are going to happen if I can sort of distill it down as simple as I can. Um, so, yeah, always believing that, that there is going to be good stuff that's going to happen and certainly looking for the bright spots and, and looking, um, again, just being, being quite, um, hopeful about the future and just being really positive about it rather than, I guess, you know, obviously the flip side is pessimism, which is, you know, it's, it's having a, a negative outlook towards the future. Yeah. It's, it's, it's quite exciting. It's quite exciting and probably a little bit, under undervalued is probably the, the the thing to look at it is is just how powerful it can be. Absolutely. So telling us a little bit about your backstory, what was your childhood like? And do you remember having any big dreams of what you do when you grew up? Did you know what you wanted to be? Did you know what your life you thought would be like as a, as a child? Absolutely. Absolutely. I had such clear pictures of what I was going to do when I got older. And from the time I could pretty much talk all I wanted to do was be a vet. So everything that I did around my schooling, that was my focus. And even to the, to the point where I'd gotten towards the end of primary school, um, I, I knew which school, what high school I needed to go to, I wanted to go to. It was actually a selective high school. So I had to go through the whole preparation for those exams, you know, as a competitive process. Um, I actually, you know, got a first round offer to go to the school that I wanted to go to. So um, that was certainly well and truly on track for me. Um, Aside from that, I was an athlete as well. So sport was a bit of an obsession and I played softball in summer. I was a pitcher 
And in winter, I played soccer and I ended up being a friend and I, this is like 28, 29 years ago. So yeah, I'm really showing my age now. Um, a, a friend and- <laughs> we weren't even going to ask your age, but you've offered it up. It seems people be doing the math do, now going, oh, okay. Yes, do the math. <laughs> um, so yeah, sort of, um, you know, 28, 29 years ago, a friend and I, um, we fought like hell and we ended up being the first two girls that ever played soccer at our school in the boys team. So it just, I get so excited seeing how far women's sport has come now and how high profile it is. Obviously, there's still a lot of work to be done. But, you know, being probably one of those very early agitators um, for change in sport was um, it just I get so much thrill out of seeing how, thing, how things have come. So, yeah, so sport was an obsession. I was a rep runner as well. I represented every distance from the 100 metres to the cross country. And, yeah, so just that combination of having such a clear vision um, from an academic perspective and a career perspective on what I was going to do and then also, you know, balancing that out really nicely with, um, you know, with being quite a talented and also passionate athlete as well. So, yeah, certainly, you know, childhood was, you know, probably probably clearer than most on um, on what my passions and goals were and um, and what I was going to do to achieve them as well. Wise beyond your years, but definitely the sounds of it. So, if you could just share with us the significant life event that changed that path for you. Yeah, so at the end of year six, so I'd said I'd been accepted into the um, agricultural high school that I was going to go to. I'd done all my orientations. And um, so, yeah, so everything was just progressing perfectly. Um, unfortunately, that all got completely thrown out the window. Um, it was a hot Sunday afternoon, first weekend in summer, and I was cooling off in a backyard pool, a relative's place, um, with my younger brother, who was 10, and a couple of other boys around the same age. Um, and being the only girl and being that bit older, I'm like, there's no way I want anything to do with you guys. Um, so it's never too cool for school. Oh God, I know. I just, I, I sound like such a bit of a bit of a wank actually back then, didn't I? Um, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it was, um, yeah, you know what it's like. You don't want to hang around with your little brothers and stuff like that. No, so, of course not. Yeah. So, um, every time I visited this, um, relative's place, like what I used to do is just climb up on the edge and dive in and just did it over and over again, just an above ground pool. So, um, not a suitable pool for diving, but it was something that I did over and over again anyway. Um, and one time I was just being a complete perfectionist. So I, was, I totally sound like a nightmare, don't I, as a, as a 12 year old. So, um, so yeah, complete perfectionist. I'm like, no, I'm splashing too much as I'm diving. So I thought, I stood there on the edge of the pool and I thought, if I try and keep my legs straighter and I try and hold my feet together, then I thought, in theory, then that would just make this really nice, neat entry into the pool. So I thought, great, I figured this out and um, I, I did that. So I took a deep breath and I dived in, holding my legs together and keeping them straight. Anyway, I um, it felt like any other dive um, that I'd done before until I went to go and swim up from the surface, up to the surface, and I realized I couldn't move. So I was stuck at the bottom of the pool, fully conscious, had no idea what had gone wrong, but I could not move at all. So I'm desperately thinking, how the hell do I get the attention of my brother to, to help me here? Um, but very quickly, I was running out of the capacity to hold my breath and, you know, panic and, a, you know, absolute terror and fear had completely set in at that point. And it got to the point where I couldn't hold my breath any longer. So I just had to give in. And as I breathed in and my lungs filled with water, I just blacked out. Um, eventually, my brother realized he thought I was just joking. And um, obviously, I was under a lot, hell of a lot longer than... I should have been and he realized something was wrong and um, he actually pulled me out and raised the alarm for help and 
it was later that night after at the third hospital that um, I had a doctor come and tell me in intensive care that I'd actually broken my neck and drowned and I'd never walk again. So, you know, it literally felt like my life, literally felt like my life was over in that moment. Absolutely. I can imagine you, no matter how many years go by, you can vividly recall that that sort of turning point, if you like, and that sliding doors moment. Yeah. Can you recall, you know, as a teenager, what was it like to suddenly be in a wheelchair? I mean, I can only imagine physically how difficult that is, but also mentally how you're coping with watching your other friends go on to various milestones and your life is in a completely different reality. How did you, how did you cope? It it was um like I certainly felt like the universe had it in for me at that time because I first of all I couldn't go to the high school that I was meant to go to um, because I wasn't able to get myself around and there was absolutely zero access at the school so I missed the first six months of high school because I was in hospital and then I started you know school in the middle of the year you know changing schools is hell anyway. Um, but middle of the year at a school that was nowhere near home where I didn't know a single person. So that co- that really compounded um, the struggles I was having. And even just being a teenager is tough at the best of times, you know, especially, you know, we're really struggling with our identity and who we are and where we fit and just different dynamics. And, and, and that was then, it said, compounded by me really struggling with what had happened, I certainly hadn't accepted it. Um, I was really bitter and angry and resentful and that was all directed at myself because that, you know, I was in that situation because of my own actions. Um, so I certainly sought some non, um, you know, not very healthy out um, outlets um, and I spent a, a large proportion of my teenage years drunk or stoned and that was my that was my way of coping and the 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 biggest downfall there was is that in between those you know artificial moments of happiness that i really got into deeper darker pits of de- depression and despair and anxiety which i actually hid really well from people i was really good at the facade that everything's great and i'm getting on with life but um you know it wasn't until i actually published my book a couple of years ago that people really realized just how tough i did do it um and but i didn't let anyone in at that point in time Absolutely. I can imagine, um, you know, perhaps family even might not have even been as aware as, you know, like you're saying of what was really going on and, Mm. you know, you probably pushed people away and so forth. I guess, you know, moving forward a little bit, um, you've decided on some new challenges and we will go into your book and so forth soon. But I read that at the end of 2012, you began athletics after, you know, a hiatus from some sort of physical competitiveness for many years. And discus and sprints was your, your choice of, uh, of poison, if you like, and big, big dreams for that. So how, how did you get into that? How do you suddenly decide I'm going to become an athlete again? It sounds like it was very much part of your childhood, but then it came back into your life at a later stage. Yeah, it was um, when I was first in hospital, I actually had to spend eight weeks flat on my back with a sandbag either side of my head. I couldn't move anything. So I had a lot of time to think at that point in time. And certainly I wasn't in a great headspace. And because sport was such a big part of my life, I actually made a pact with my 12-year-old self. It sounds heavy, doesn't it? And um But yeah, I made a pact that I was never going to play sport again because I couldn't play it like I used to. And other than a few sort of experiences through my teens and early 20s where I tried a couple of sports but ended up being completely embarrassed by how slow and uncoordinated I was, I actually kept that up for 22 years, which is a pretty massive pact to keep, isn't it? Like, 
Wow. Yeah, 22 years. That, that that shows your commitment to keeping a pact, <laughs> even if it's not a great one. I'm, I'm a woman of my word. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and um, it was just a couple of days after my 34th birthday, I had this urge that came from God knows where that said, Stace, it's time to get fit. And, um, yeah, and it's funny when you when you make a decision, it's like, okay, this is a, there's a time to question and a time not to question. And this, this, this urge that came to me was so strong that I thought, okay, I need to do something about this. Um, and within a couple of days, I got an email about a Paralympic talent search. And I thought, wow, that's probably a cool place to go and find something to get fit. Um, so I registered for it. But a couple of days before the event, I reread the email and it said they were looking for athletes. And I'm like, I'm not an athlete. I'm never going to be an athlete. So I'd better not go. And um, my partner at the time said, no, no, just go. You never know what might come of it. And so I did and I felt so old. And um, But again, you know, I, if I say I'm going to do something, it's 100%. And I tried a range of sports and I was encouraged by all of the coaches that I could pursue it. Um, but it wasn't until a couple of weeks after that talent search that I got a letter in the mail from the Paralympic Committee that, that said I showed all the physical attributes to be a potential Paralympian. And I'm like, Shit, I've just spent 22 years. That's incredible. I know, like, wow, I'm getting shivers just hearing that. Like, like you just tick that stuff off your bucket list, particularly, yeah. I guess, in your 30s if you've not done much, like you say, for 20-odd years. Yeah. It's just incredible. It was it was amazing and it was like here I was having not even had a crack because I didn't think I was good enough for 22 years and I was presented this opportunity and I went 34 um, to be a potential Paralympian to represent my country. And so all of my competitive instincts were just completely reignited in that moment. And so I started to pursue that and, um, you know, through a process, um, ended up settling on, first of all, discus. But I had, you know, some massive setbacks on the classification process around that. And I threw left-handed even though I was right-handed and all this crazy stuff. It was just, I was, you know, I, I'll find a way. Um, but it got to the point where I was never going to be able to compete internationally. So I ended up moving over to track, which for me, I really feel is, has been a full circle for me considering that, you know, my obsession and I guess my greatest talent was in running as a, as a child. And, um, you know, here I was, you know, 20, 22 to, you know, through to now, like, you know, 20 sort of seven years later, um, being back on the track, which is, you know, it's really exciting to, to have been able to, you know, really, as I said, almost close that loop. Absolutely. Um, have you continued with it? I mean, obviously you, you sort of have, you know, it was a couple of years ago. Is it something that you still pursue and wh- what do you hope to do with it? Or is it just something that's part of your life now and has got you back back on the track, so to speak? Uh, originally when I first started, um, I started with an intention of competing internationally. Um, and the goal at that time was to compete at the Paralympics in Rio in 2016. Um, certainly there was a lot of setbacks and that didn't happen. And really the lesson there was that we always overestimate what we can achieve in the short term, but we underestimate what we can achieve in the long term. Um, so I had to sort of rejig some of those, um, those goals, not so much the goals, I guess, but the, the timelines. Um, I was living in Adelaide at the time when I first started um, with the sports and there was zero resources as far as equipment, coaching, all that sort of stuff. So that also formed part of my, I moved um, back to Sydney a couple of years ago um, because that this is where, you know, the best track resources for, um, you know, for para athletes are in the country. Um, but there's certainly been still a hell of a lot more setbacks. Um, I haven't competed in two years now. I haven't ruled it out completely. Um, but there's been some barriers at the international level that means that there may not even be an event that I could compete in in Tokyo. So I'm in this 
I guess, really assessing my future as far as that goes and really need to decide whether it's going to be something I pursue recreationally um, because if there is no event for me in Tokyo, then, you know, another in Tokyo I'm going to be 42 anyway. So four years later than that, I, I really feel it's just getting out of the question. So it's there's lots of stuff to you, You'll assess. be able to take up golf by then. <laughs> yeah, but maybe, maybe it might be a table. Middle-aged sport. It might be a table, table tennis or botcher or arch, yeah. archery or something. I don't know. Oh, yes, archery. I could see that. Yes. How funny. <laughs> yes. um, thank you for sharing that. Um, you do have so many strings to your bow, and I'd also like to touch on the fact that you can add actor to your CV now. And I really have followed this with, with a lot of interest. And this year you made your acting debut as a character called Sarah in a feature a film called The Casting Game. Apparently, you were approached to consider this role via LinkedIn messaging, which is shows the power of social media and also, wow, like usually people go to years of acting schools and hope to be discovered. So there you go. Another another thing you can say is um, been part of your optimistic future. Explain to me why you even said yes to acting. Yeah, it was um, certainly not anything that was on my radar in any way, shape, or form. And yeah, it was a, it was a, it was a couple of days after Christmas last year that I got this message on LinkedIn. From it was completely cold. Um, it was someone that I did not have any connection with at all. Who said she was a, a director? She's directing this um, just a, just a low budget indie film, um, and they were looking for a lead actress who used a wheelchair. And she sort of, sort of said, "Would well, would this be something that might be up your alley?" And I'm like. I, wow. Um, and so I just emailed her back and I said, after I did a bit of, you know, research slash stalking just to make sure that it wasn't dodgy. And um, because that could be really, you know, you just never know. There's some dodgy stuff out there. Um, so after I'd done my um, due diligence, um, I did email her back and I said, look, yeah, look, I'm open to having a conversation about it. Look, I'd love to know more. And so we had a conversation and which led to me reading the script, meeting with her and um, the other producers and writer. And they offered me this, offered me the role, um, which I did say yes to. Um, and that comes a lot to do with my philosophy on life is say yes and figure it out later. And I've realized on reflection now that if you add in, uh, if the more it scares me, the more likely I am to say yes. Um, I just, I just really like doing things that are going to challenge my comfort zones. And once they assured me that, you know, cause I thought, well, look, they wouldn't ask me to do this if I didn't have confidence that they could coach me through this. Um, so yeah, so from zero acting experience to virtually, um, nine months later sitting in a theater watching myself on the big screen, which I've never been so anxious or self-conscious in my entire life. Um, yes, it was just an amazing experience. So, I usually say to people, look, say yes, um, as long as you have the confidence that you could do it, the desire that you'd like to do it, um, just because you haven't done something before. Um, if it's just coming from fear in saying no, then that's not the right reason to say no. Obviously, if it's going to throw you way off track or if it's just something that's just completely not, you know, not in your scope, then, you know, it's better to say no because I think a lot of the times we do end up saying yes, regretting it, and then spend so much time trying to undo the yes. So, it's um, uh, – Absolutely. Wow. That's incredible. I, I definitely have to see it. Um, I haven't actually seen it yet, but I did watch that journey through social media and thought that that's incredible and obviously a sign that, um, you know, you've got so many opportunities and, and, and linking it back to the idea of optimism that opportunities the universe presents might not be the ones that you think of when you're, you know, eight years old, but 
other things happen that sometimes are even better, I think, sometimes, even if they are setbacks and they're obviously challenges in your life and everyone has those. But I think it's, it sounds like a lot of it is your openness and your willingness to give things a go. Yeah. And that's definitely something which I think changes people's mindsets, in my experience, from, you know, being pessimist to optimist and thinking, oh, why didn't I get that? It's like, well, what else did you get? Like, you know, that glass half empty, half oh, full theory, it which is. all our parents – Throw down, throw at us when we're little kids and we don't get it and suddenly, you know, you grow up and you think that's actually 100% true. It, you give two people two different situations and you'll get two different responses. It's totally true and I agree with you. As you said that, you know, I, I you know, completely believe, I, tr- I trust in the timing of the universe and um, that um, that usually the, you know, what, what ends up getting offered up to us even though it's not what we initially asked for, um, you know, is, is just is trusting it and running with it. And, and in my experience, um, that all of those plan B has ended up being an amazing, amazing opportunity and I can say with absolute certainty um, has led to, you know, far more um, exciting and challenging experiences than the plan A was going to offer up. Absolutely. You've also successfully created your own business called the Stacey Copas Academy of Resilience. Great title, great name. We totally get what that's about. How did you decide to launch this and what do you actually do with companies and organisations and individuals in this academy? Um, It started out just speaking about resilience and obviously a huge part of resilience is optimism and being able to start to condition yourself to look for the good um, because by design our brains are designed to keep us safe um, and to look for problems. So, um, a lot of the stuff I talk about in that is is all about, you know, as I say, conditioning yourself to look for the good and, and setting yourself up um, to be able to withstand some of the stuff that gets thrown our way. So, yes, I started out um, speaking. It was actually a, a mentor that put the label of resilience on it. Um, and over time, I'd, I'd sort of put my framework, I put together a framework of it based on my life experience. So, I'm not an academic or a psychologist. Um, I just, I come at it from life experience, which um, my clients, absolutely love and the interesting part of it was is I was so fearful when I first started that not having any academic qualifications was actually a detriment but when I started to actually lead with that and go into meetings with CEOs and HR directors and go by the way I'm not an academic or a psychologist they said thank god for that um we've done that and it just so you found your niche yeah absolutely I think I think the realness of your story and who you are and what you've experienced that would a hundred times more resonate with me as well than necessarily someone who's been to Harvard and studied, you know, 2,000 people talking about resilience but maybe hasn't lived it. You know, like there's something about the reality that I think is so much more powerful. Yeah, and it's the power of storytelling. Um, And, you know, I don't just go in there and just tell my story. I obviously teach through that based on, you know, reverse engineering how I, ter- how I got my life from, you know, those absolute rock bottom moments to, you know, where I am now and where I'm headed. Um, so yeah. And over time, um, I started out just, just speaking, just being myself, but over the last 12 months, I've, I've, um, re sort of jigged the business model. And as said, now it's become the Academy of Resilience. Um, I launched an online um, course this year. Um, and then over time, my goal is, is to find people that also have, um, amazing stories of, you know, dealing with adversity of varying types 
that then can use their story in conjunction with my framework to then become facilitators and speakers for the academy. So, you know, certainly got some really big pictures around that. Um, most of the clients I work with at the moment are corporate and government organizations going through change, which, hey, who isn't? And, um, and you'd, you'd have a bottomless pit of work there, I'd say. Pretty much, pretty much. Um, and just helping them to reframe the way they look at change and getting them to actually get excited about the opportunities it presents and how they can be involved in the process of change rather than sitting back and, and feeling either victimized about it or feeling that they have no, um, no influence or that they're a passenger in the process. Oh, that's really powerful. And did the book come out at the same time as you were running this business? So the How to Be Resilient book, which came out in 2015, was that something that, you know, accompanied the academy or was separate to it or was there a process to one happening and then the other? Um, the book predated, um, I guess, the evolution of what I was doing into the academy. Um, I actually crowdfunded the book in early 2014. Uh, partly because I thought that would give me the accountability to hurry up and finish it. It still took me nearly another year. Um, but yeah, I had a successful crowdfunding campaign, pre-sold about six, just over 6,000 US dollars worth of copies of the book. And, um, and then, then published, um, self-published that in 2015. So obviously that had been, um, probably a platform in, from which that the academy ended up launching and the book, um, certainly helped position um, my views and my, my, um, I guess my angle on resilience in the marketplace as well. Terrific. I'd love you to give us an example of how you've been able to help someone else that's perhaps not in a good place truly overcome their situation and embrace optimism. I'm not expecting you to name names or give away anything confidential, but I'd love to sort of see how you, you know, in action, how you might have worked with someone to help them because I think your story is amazing. You're, you've got optimism all over you. You can hear it in your voice. You can feel it in what you do. What about other people? How, how have you actually been able to help someone? Yeah, it's, it's, it's actually happens a lot. Um, and I certainly find either I get a lot of people approach me via social media. Um, I get a lot of private messages from people that are really struggling with certain things in their lives. And there's, there's, there's a few things that I do really try and get people to do to get themselves out of that rut that they're in. Because unfortunately, a lot of the times when people have had a setback or are really struggling with something in their lives, they fixate on the problem. And so the first thing I do is to get them to, I guess, unfix from the problem and start to look for the good stuff in their lives. So it generally starts with a, a process of gratitude. So just getting them to just answer a simple question at the end of each day, which was what was the best thing that happened today? And just looking for one thing, it just starts that process of, of conditioning the optimism rather than, as I said, being fixated on a problem. And again, it's, you know, where your focus grows, energy flows. And your focus, where your focus goes, energy flows. So it's. Oh, I like that. Yeah. That, that, could, that could be like a bumper sticker. <laughs> oh, it's good. Yeah, it's, it is. But it's like, but you know what it's like. It's what you focus on, you get more of. Um, Absolutely. So, so, true. so certainly it's not getting people to completely 
disregard what they're going through. It's just a matter of starting to then go, yes, I acknowledge this. This has happened. I can't change that. But what I can do is I can start to change what I do from this point forward. The other thing, just these things are really simple and sometimes people discount simplicity. Um, and that's why I always have to frame it. It's just like this sounds simple and it's because it is. So don't just go, yeah, I know it and ignore it. It's um, sunshine is one of the other things. It's just connecting with nature. It's just such a grounding process. Um, so a lot of the time when I find if people, you know, are really struggling, I'm like, just get outside and sit in the sun, close your eyes, feel the sunshine on your eyelids and just be present for a moment and be very aware of the feelings that, you know, again, it's, 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 it's a simple mindfulness thing. Um, but mindfulness is only part of the process. And I think that's where sometimes things get a bit lost in mindfulness. Um, and then just getting them to start to, again, look at, you know, what, what they're excited about in the future. If, or what could they be excited about in the future if they chose to be? And just starting to get people to realize that they have the power to make decisions. Every single day, you know, every every moment you have the power to make a decision that can actually change the situation you're in. Um, and it's like we're living and breathing your very own choose your own adventure book um, and realizing that and actually taking that ownership of it and and actually driving, you know, driving your life forwards rather than just putting your hands up in the air and going, it's hopeless. No, I love that. I, I feel the power of those steps. And they, like you say, it is quite simple, but people have to action it. You can't read 100 books on it and never do it, right? Mm-hmm. You just have to start doing those small steps every day and they become a habit like, you know, good exercise habits or good eating. It's really, really great stuff. Yeah. I have two questions I always ask all my guests and I will wrap up with those for you today. Sure. Do you have any special inspirational people in your life that have been significant? They don't have to be famous. They could be, you know, relatives or whoever it could be. But who are they and what have they taught you about life and success? Probably the person that's had the most impact and and really helped me to have the most exponential moves forward, especially in the last few years, um, has been Lane Beachley. So I'm absolutely thrilled that I'm able to work with her and help um, with the foundation now, which has been amazing. And I actually got a grant from her in 2014 when I sort of really only was very new to sport. Um, and having someone like that, you know, demonstrate their belief in me was uh, incredible. Um, and so I've, I've watched her since I was, a, since I was a kid, um, and seen, you know, the adversity that she'd faced, um, both in sport and in life. Um, and it's just been able to just, you know, completely just keep going and going and going and just reach higher and higher levels of success. So she's been somebody that's been, um, a huge inspiration to me. Um, and as I said, I'm absolutely thrilled that, you know, I get to work a lot more closely with her now as, as far as being an ambassador and mentor for the foundation. Um, but as far as inspiration goes, there's just, I guess there's one thing I just, I really like to share with people is that, it's it while it's good to have inspirational people around you and to seek inspiration from external sources if the primary source of your inspiration is not internal then it's not sustainable that's amazing that's so true though isn't it like people often like i just interviewed a guest recently and he was sharing that idea that he became almost a seminar junkie because he was looking for so many fixes of inspiration and ideas but he realized he actually had to ground himself and focus on himself as well and put some of that inside him so i think that totally speaks to me as well just the idea that you need you need to work on yourself and and make that a priority rather than always looking for, oh, who are these amazing magic people that some of that, you know, stardust is going to rub off on me if I hang around them. But 
sometimes that doesn't work. Yeah, it can, it can have obviously add add fuel to the fire, but the fire needs to be. I guess it needs to be stoked from or sparked from within to start with. Um, and, and yeah, I agree. There's so many people that are that always, always seeking stuff and they'll spend their whole lives looking. Um, but really we have the answers. We have most of the answers within us already. Um, and it's just trusting that. And I think that we, we don't value ourselves enough, um, to, to trust and believe in ourselves that we can do it. And then your final top tip for anyone keen to master the politics of optimism, what would that be? Um, the one thing is is journaling. Um, journaling has probably been the biggest um, move forward for me. Um, and it's just a way to start to um, to really start to master the language that you use. And, and the language that you, we use um, is a huge step towards becoming more optimistic. So it's about using positive language um, and looking at situations that and the words we use to describe them. You know, for instance, you know, your footy team losing is not devastating. Although, you know, every time I speak for a footy club, they don't agree with me. Um, but it's, um, it's one of those <laughs> things that people like awfulize situations and they don't put enough emphasis on the positive side of it. And really the simplest thing is, uh, you know, I, I touched on it briefly before is, is at the end of each day asking yourself what was the best thing that happened today and, and keeping that in a journal. Um, and just it can be one sentence. And that's how I started. Um, and I also, I made sure I did it every day. It was a no exception rule. And just by starting that, because we start to reprogram our brain to look for the good stuff. Um, and that's how we become more optimistic is because we get what we look for. Um, and if we start to look for the good stuff, we're going to see more of it. And, and, and over time, then we will become more naturally optimistic. It's been a pleasure to have you on the program today. I can't think of a better example of someone who radiates optimism and also a lot of resilience as well. So we could have almost have had a, you know, a, a dual episode, but that's not the style of the show. If you do want to connect further with Stacey Cobus, uh, some details of, of her website and how to connect with her through LinkedIn will be on my show notes. You've been listening to The Politics of Everything. Until next time, keep well. Thanks for listening today. If you've enjoyed the politics of everything, we thrive on feedback. So please add a short review and share the podcast with your network and your friends and family. I'm also always on the hunt for fabulous new guests. So if you've got a view to share and an idea how to get our listeners excited, please email me at amber at bespokecoms, that's B-E-S-P-O-K-E-C-O-M-M-S dot com dot A-U and we'll be sure to get back to you. Until next time.